Hmm. Does hell exist? What is the Jewish belief? If it exists, what exactly transpires there? Who goes to hell? Will we end up there? What is the purpose of hell? We're going to talk about this today. It's Tuesday, 12.15. Time for Lunch and Learn, our weekly Torah session. Every week we talk about something from a Jewish perspective. And today's topic is, does hell exist? What it's all about, if it does exist, what's its purpose, and what it means to us. Good afternoon. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jody. Hi, Roy. Hi, everybody joining on for our weekly Torah session, an hour of studying Torah together. It's just about a year since, uh, I guess it's the anniversary of Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live, I believe. And I miss the good lunches, but I'll make a bracha over a cup of water. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malach Olam Sheakon Yabedvorei. As you can see, I'm holding it in my right hand. <coughs> and as we spoke on the episode about when we make a blessing, we hold the food item in our right hand. If we're righty today. We have a source sheet for today's lesson. You can find it in your email, hijack, or on this post. There is a link. You can print it out. Get ready to follow along for today's lesson, um, an important topic to get the Jewish perspective down pat or at least get a general idea. This is a wide uh, topic and there's lots, lots to talk about to get a little taste, to get a uh, basic idea of what the Jewish perspective is on the afterlife. Where are the souls of our loved ones? Are they? What are they doing? And uh, although we did talk about uh, some aspects of this topic, but today we'll focus on heaven and hell, if there is such a thing, and what it's all about. What's the purpose? Yes, uh, we miss all the lunches. Thank God I get to have some of her cooking. <laughs> um, okay. So, <clears throat> what happens after a man passes on, after a man dies? The children start fighting. But besides that, what happens to the soul of man in the afterlife, after living the life in this world? What happens in the afterlife? And just give a couple more seconds before we begin. And that's what we're going to tackle today. We're going to look at some traditional sources, at Torah verses. We'll look at the teachings of the Talmud. We'll look at some of the Hasidic teachings based on the teachings of Kabbalah because this is more of a spiritual kind of topic. And hopefully we will, after 60 minutes, gain a better understanding. You know, our understanding, the understanding of many of the afterlife of, of particularly hell is a place of eternal damnation and uh, where God lets His wrath out on those that went against His will so let's see what the Jewish take on this is. Hi, Bob, all the way from Orlando. Good afternoon. And we are ready to begin with source number one. Today's lesson on the source sheet is divided into three sections. The first is the principle, titled Principle. What exactly is the main idea here? And then we'll move on to the second section about um, hell and heaven, the next two sections. Okay, so here we, uh, we begin. Here we are, excuse me, source number 
1960, a group of college students came to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Crown Heights at 770 Eastern Parkway, and they posed the Rebbe with many questions. Then it was, uh, the Rebbe was much more accessible for private audiences, and there was a group of these college students, they presented the Rebbe with many questions. One of the questions was about the nature of the afterlife, what the soul goes through in the afterlife, and the Rebbe responded, source number one, the term afterlife is inappropriate. It's a continuation of life. Until 120, the soul is in one form of life. Thereafter, the soul is in another form, a higher form of life. In other words, we do not actually die. We're just born twice. Once from the womb and once from the grave. The Rebbe was pointing out that even the term, the Rebbe placed a lot of emphasis on how we coin things. What's the term? For example, how we refer to a hospital. In Hebrew, the word is the house of the ill, Bet Cholim. And the Rebbe uh, requested that it should be turned to Bet Refuah or Bet Rofim, the house of doctors, house, house of healing. It's all how we look at it. And similarly here, it's not the afterlife. It's like f saying that there's no real life. Life is here. And then there's the afterlife after living our life here, but it's not afterlife, it's a continuation of life. It's a different form of life, but uh, the soul continues to live and in actually a higher form of life because when the soul is living in the body, it is uh, confined uh, to the limitations of the body and cannot express itself and experience certain things. And after it departs the body, it continues to live in a different way of existence, another, a higher form of life. So there are two births. There's the birth of, uh, of the womb, which is one, the beginning of one existence of life for the soul, while it's united with the body. And then from the grave, the soul is sort of born again into a new form of life. So the term, even though it's generally called the afterlife, but it's not literal, it's a new form of life. Okay, so what exactly is this afterlife or a new, new form of life that the soul experiences? So, in order to understand this, we need to take a step back and understand the system of reward and punishment which shapes the experience of the soul after it leaves the body. And let's take a look at source number two, which is from Maimonides, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. We mention him a lot. He is the first codifier of the entire Jewish law. He lived in the 12th century, born in Cordoba, spent much of his years in Cairo, Egypt. And he wrote um, much about Jewish law and Jewish mysticism. Maimonides puts... In order, he collected and he codified, not codified, but uh, organized the 13 faith, principles of Jewish faith, hi Eddie, the 13 principles of Jewish faith in Hebrew, they're known as Yud Gimel Ikre Emuna, the 13 principles of the Jewish faith, and they are written up in, in uh, using the words Ani Mamin, I believe, I believe in perfect faith in this, I believe in perfect faith, many have the custom of saying these 13 principles of faith every day, like believing in Mashiach. Ani mamin b'muna shleima Mashiach is one of the principles of Jewish faith. And Maimonides in source number two, the seventh, the eleventh principle of Jewish faith, that God gives reward to those who observe the commandments of the Torah and punishes those who transgress its prohibitions. This is the 
the wording, translated from the wording of Rambam, of Maimonides, that what is a principle of Jewish faith, that we know a different principle is to believe that we, we believe in the existence of God, and we believe that God uh, gave us the Torah and wants us to keep the Torah. So that's another principle of faith. But the, after the, the, we know that we have to follow the Torah, and this is what God wants from us, to perform the mitzvahs, there's another principle of faith that those that follow the Torah, who observe the Torah, there is reward waiting for them to re- be received. And those that transgress the, the instructions of Torah, there is the opposite of reward. So this is one of the principles of faith. Now, what kind of reward is Maimonides talking about? So obviously there is, there is uh, two forms, two methods that God dispenses these rewards and punishments uh, through. Uh, it can be physical, material reward that if somebody has a field or the business will be successful, if he puts mezuzah and if he studies Torah and he gives charity, then he will be, um, the, the field will give uh, lots of bounty and, and he will be successful in business and so on and healthy and, and, and the like, as well as spiritual reward. And specifically, the ultimate reward is the reward that the soul will experience after its life in this world. As, the, as we see in source number three from Maimonides, who goes on to explain, the greatest reward is to experience the pleasures of the world to come. In Hebrew, olam haba, which means the world to come. The greatest punishment is to be cut off from the world to come. So even though there is punishment and reward mentioned in the Torah, even you know, regards to material benefits, regards to protection and security and health and success and wealth and so on, but the ultimate reward for the soul for observing the Torah and its mitzvahs is the spiritual reward which will be experienced by the soul in the afterlife, sort of in the, in the form of life that the soul continues to live after it departs the body. Why is that the ultimate reward? So we have continuing in source three, because spiritual reward is primary because spiritual pleasure is infinitely more intense and enjoyable than the physical. The spiritual pleasures of this world pale in comparison to their even more spiritual heavenly counterparts. Okay, so think for yourself. We have different pleasures that we experience. What is more intense? What is more pleasurable? Wisdom or wealth? How would you rate your pleasures? To be joyful or to go on a cruise? To be loved, to feel loved and that have a loving relationship which is more of a spiritual kind of pleasure or to be a member of an exclusive country club? Between these two, physical pleasures, more material pleasures, or more spiritual kind of pleasures, which are ranked higher, which are more enjoyable? Living a meaningful life? That's a pleasure. So even we understand that spiritual pleasure is very intense and more uh, enjoyable than physical pleasure, although physical pleasure is also very pleasurable. And the spiritual pleasures in the world to come are even more intense. And the spiritual pleasures of this world pale in comparison to the great pleasures that the soul will experience in the the afterlife, in in the form of life that the soul lives after it leaves the body. So when Maimonides tells us that a principle of Jewish faith is to believe in the concept that God... 
rewards and God punishes based on our actions in this world, the ultimate form is in the world to come. To receive this reward, to receive this spiritual pleasure, or to not receive it. That's in source number three. What we have to understand is, sorry, is why is this a principle of Jewish faith? Maimonides is telling us, Maimonides is telling us, hi Nancy, is telling us that a principle of Jewish faith is to believe in the system. Why is that such a principle? Why is that so important? You know, it's not one of the principles of Jewish faith to believe that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. We believe that God created the world, but that it was specifically six and He rested on the seventh. That's not a principle. A principle means that the, the rest of the structure of, of Torah and mitzvahs uh, depends on this principle. If you don't believe in God, then the whole, the whole Judaism, the whole Torah is not, uh, doesn't have any validity to it. Not, it's not divine, so that's a principle. But the fact that it was six days or not, and not seven days that he created, and rest, that's, not, that's not a principle. So why is this a principle of Jewish faith so, so important that God works a system of reward and punishment? So we'll get to this in a moment. Let's continue in source number four. So this is a principle of Jewish faith, but why? Why does God have to set up such a system of reward and punishment? I mean, does God have nothing better to do than to uh, lash out at those that don't follow His commandments and give rewards? God cares what we do exactly. And why can't He just trust us and just tell us what to do? He wants us to study Torah. He wants us to wrap the fill and light candles before Shabbos. Okay, tell us to do it. Why the whole need for reward and punishment? So there's a this simple reason and there's a deeper re reason. The simple reason is source number four is without reward and punishment, only those who are completely selfless, altruistic, and without ulterior motives have an incentive to do good and to avoid wrongdoing. Does that description fit all? If there was no system of reward, for doing good and punishment for those that don't do good or do the opposite of good, then only those people that are completely selfless and just doing the right thing, then, then it would work. But the fact is that we do have a judicial system, we do have law enforcement, because the fact is, the reality of life is that we're not also perfect and we do have um, ulterior motives and, and, and we're not so selfless. We're a little bit selfish, or at least sometimes, or at least some of us. So there is a need, if God really wants us to do Torah and mitzvahs and make this world a better place, then He needs to set in a system of punishment, which is a deterrence that people should not sin, and incentive that people should do good with, with uh, giving punishment, giving reward. So that's the simple reason, because the human condition is very frail and we are not as selfless as, uh, as it should be. So there needs to be in place such a system, hi Maxim. That is the simple reason. But of course, with everything, there is a deeper idea here. And here we go. Source number five. The reward for a mitzvah is a mitzvah. The retribution for a sin is a sin. Here we have a quote from Mishnah. Mishnah was compiled about 1800 years ago by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, in the, I believe, the end of the third century or the second century. And in, in Israel, we had a whole lunch and learn about this individual, Judah the Prince. And 
the first compilation of the entire oral tradition. One of the tractates there, in tractate Ava, it's known as Ethics of Her Father, says, what is the reward for a mitzvah? We're talking about reward. You know what the reward for a mitzvah is? Another mitzvah. What is the retribution for a sin? Another sin. What does this mean? So we look in the commentaries, namely Rabbi Badia Bartinura, and he says, one who does one mitzvah is helped, and another mitzvah is placed in front of him to also do, in order to give him the reward for both of them. A person does a mitzvah, and there's a reward for the mitzvah. Part of the reward is that Hashem places in, gives him an opportunity to perform another mitzvah, so he can get more reward. And the opposite, if someone does a sin, then part of the retribution is that another sin, another temptation is sort of placed in his path, and to, to be able to, be able to uh, receive more punishment. That's a simple explanation, a simple translation of the passage of the Mishnah that the reward for this mitzvah is another mitzvah. You gave charity, so we'll give you another opportunity to help another individual. So you'll get more, you'll get more reward. But in Kabbalah, in the deeper um, <coughs> sections of the Torah, this passage is explained on an entirely different level. We're not referring to two different mitzvahs. It's, it's, uh, if you're following along with me, if I'm going too fast, please comment or let me know. It's a bit of a spiritual kind of topic, but uh, this section is sort of the introduction, and then we'll get to hell and heaven, if it does exist. So if you're with me, give me a thumbs up or you can comment, and if you have any questions that need to be clarified, feel free to comment below. So... The Kabbalah says it's not that if you do this mitzvah, you will be rewarded with an opportunity to do another mitzvah. The Kabbalah says something totally different. The Kabbalah says the reward for the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. The mitzvah itself and the reward of the mitzvah is one and the same. What does this mean? We look into the teachings of Kabbalah. Thank you, Maxim and Jody. We look into the teachings of one of the great Kabbalists. His name was Menachem, Menachem Rakanti. He lived in the 15th century in Italy, one of the great Kabbalists. And we look into, into one of his books. Source number six, the Torah's punishments are natural consequences. It's not like, you know, God is this king and the king has decrees and this is what you should do, this is what is allowed to be eaten, this is what should not be eaten. And if someone transgresses, you know, the Inquisition, if they catch somebody doing something against their law, then they burn them at the stake. Right? So the punishment... Or, or they're, they're fined. The fine, or let's say someone uh, you know, goes uh, be, uh, over the speed limit here in New York uh, with all the cameras. So, he um, didn't do anything wrong. He just, uh, just got cut. So the fine is not a natural consequence from your action. You were speeding. So the punishment is... Uh, whatever it is, fifty dollars, uh, or, or go for for going thirty six instead of thirty five, but it's not that fifty dollars is really connected to what you did. They could have decided to give you something else, maybe to give you lashes, maybe uh, a different number. But this is what was decided. It's 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 not intrinsically connected. It's not a consequence. Hi, Gary. We're talking about um, the experience of the soul in the afterlife. So, punishment and reward that the Torah talks about is not, um, is not like what an earthly king would, 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 uh, would punish or reward. 
Source 6. The Torah's punishments are natural consequences. One who fails to observe a Torah commandment is denied the good that naturally results from its observance. And of course, someone who does observe, is uh, it's available to him the, the natural result, the natural outcome of his mitzvah. This is similar to one who doesn't sow, who then obviously cannot reap. Or one who doesn't wear clothing and then becomes cold. Or the nature of fire to cause heat, the nature of water to make wet, and the nature of bread to satiate. Similarly, it is the nature of each mitzvah to elicit the positive consequences or outcomes that are promised for its observance, or the negative consequences for its transgression. So it's not that if you do this mitzvah, God says, you just do what I want, put it on tefillin. If you put it on tefillin, I'm going to give you such a reward. I'm going to give you $100. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you something. And if you, don't put it, if you uh, eat non-kosher, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a punishment. I'm going to whip you. No, it's not a separate thing. The mitzvah produces a certain outcome. And similarly, in the negative way. It's not to say that if you don't sow, if you don't uh, plow and plant the ground and uh, sow the seeds, then your punishment is that it's not going to grow. It's not, it's not a punishment. <laughs> if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. You're not going to benefit from the crop because there's no crop because you didn't do it. If you did it, so, oh, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you a reward for working so hard. No, he did it. So, so it happens automatically. It's an automatic process. So it's very different. So let's say somebody. We, we, you know, we all need food. Let's think about it like this. We all need food to survive. How do we get food? Well, one way is we go and work. We're in business, or we're a tailor, or we're a seamstress, or we pack shelves in the store, whatever it is, and we make money. And with that money. The money that, uh, let's say, we're hired by somebody. So we're, the hours that we spent, we're a lawyer, we're a doctor, whatever it is, we get paid for that service. But, and with that money, we can go to the store and buy food. Another method is, we need food. We go to our backyard, we take a seed, we put it in the ground, it grows. We take the, the kernel, we br- grind it into flour, we make dough and we make bread and we eat. Or we plant uh, uh, vegetables and so on. The two different uh, scenarios, two different ways. Work doesn't produce money. You can work and not get any money if you're working for yourself. You're just doing work. Sometimes <laughs> you just won't get paid. So work doesn't equal money. It's, it's decided. Uh, you know, society decided that, you, that if you come to the store, I'm going to pay you with money. <laughs> it doesn't have to be money. It could be something else. And, and with your money, money doesn't equal food. You can use money for many things. You can use it to go on vacation. You can use it for clothes. Money, work doesn't equal money. Money doesn't equal food. But if you plant, that equals that it's going to grow. If you put the proper work into it, and then you'll have food as a simple consequence and outcome of your work. So it's not that the reward and punishment are disconnected from what we're doing. If God says, if, I just want you to go and do that. You go do the mitzvah and don't sin. And then in the next world, I'm going to give you rewards and punishments. No. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah. The reward of the mitzvah is the accomplishment, is the consequence, the result of what you did, of the mitzvah. As we'll see as the lesson continues. And the opposite, when a sin is committed, 
when some, one might transgress the instructions of the Torah, there is a certain reality, there's a certain consequence, a natural consequence of the, of the sin. And that is the definition of the punishment in the world to come. So in other words, it's spelled out in source number 7, God's system of reward and punishment is not a necessary concession to human frailty, but it is an automated process caused directly, it is generated by our actions. Afterlife is not an existing world that we enter after death, but one that we create. It is not reward or punishment for our actions in the conventional sense, but the full and unobscured experience of our actions themselves. It is a radically different perspective on the afterlife. It's not like there is this place called hell, there's this place called heaven, and the soul goes there, and that's, that's where it experiences, based on what it did. It is an experience, it is a revealed experience, an unobscured experience of what the soul created for itself, as we will develop throughout the lesson. But that is a crucial um, element, a crucial uh, way of understanding, part of understanding how, how the Jewish view, the Jewish perspective, very different. It is an automated process. Not that the humans are frail, that human beings are, are not so selfless. So God has to put the system of reward and punishment as an incentive for them to do good and as a deterrence for them to refrain from doing bad. No, even if there wouldn't be this problem, everybody would just do good and everybody would be selfless, there would still be reward. Not, be, not as an incentive, but just that in the, in, the, in the world that the soul is free of the constraints of the body, it is able to fully experience the consequences, the outcomes, the results of its actions in this world. Now, the fact is that humans are frail, and there are, the, the, the soul was tainted also during its lifetime through certain sins. So there needs to be also the experience of the outcomes of the sins. But that's not, it's not only as an incentive, as a deterrent, but it's the experience the soul has as a result of its own actions in this world. Source number eight. And perhaps this explains, so it's not that God is busy, you know, God is busy out there, he has his big torch and he's uh, torturing the souls. It's an automated process. It's a system that a soul creates for itself. And perhaps this explains why this is such a principle in Jewish faith. It's a principle. It's not just part of the Jewish faith. There's many things that are part of the Jewish faith. But this is one of the 13 principles. It makes it in. Why? Because it's teaching us how valuable, how um, impactful our actions are in the good and in the negative. Source number eight, there is intrinsic worth and importance to our actions. Our actions are impactful. Our labor, work, and struggles are innately meaningful. Not merely because they garner us extrinsic, extrinsic reward. Not that God says, you guys just work the, you know, you guys just do the Torah, do the mitzvahs, that's just what I want, and then, you know, I'll, I'll pay you very well for your work. No, it's not what it's about. <laughs> Every time we do a mitzvah, it's meaningful. We're creating a certain reality for the soul. 
And God forbid, on the opposite side, every time we do something which is not in line with God's will, there is a certain impact that that action happens. Not just that we're doing something that God didn't want, but there is a reality, there is a consequence to every action. Innately meaningful, intrinsically connected. It's a cause that... Okay, I think that, that uh, point is clear. That's our first section. The pr- what is exactly is the principle? There is a principle of Jewish faith to believe in reward and punishment. The ultimate reward and punishment is the spiritual pleasure, because spiritual pleasure is infinitely uh, more enjoyable than physical pleasure, and especially the spiritual pleasure that will be in the world to come. And the system of reward and punishment is not just as an incentive and a deterrence because of the frailty of the, of the human being that we might not do the right thing, but because it's actually an automated process, it is the re- natural consequence of our behavior, um, how this, what the soul creates for itself. Okay, now, let's move on. There was this individual from Chicago, freezing cold, I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, Oh, it's freezing cold. It gets really cold there. We were once there. I think I mentioned last week. It was I think it was the same trip to Chicago. And it was bitterly cold. So this man, time for vacation. Everyone seems to be going to Miami now. He, he flies to Miami, and the plan was that his wife was going to join him the next day. His wife was on a business trip, and they planned that she would meet him the next day. So meanwhile, he flies out himself, he checks into the hotel, and before retiring for the night, he decides to send an email to his wife. He sends her an email, and he writes to her, but the problem was that when he put in the email address, he made a little mistake, and instead of uh, going to his wife's inbox, um, it, it arrived in the inbox of a widow whose husband just died the day before. And this widow opens her email. Imagine she's, she's sitting shiva. Her husband just died the day before. And she opens this email and she gets an email and she says, My dear wife, I just checked in. Everything's okay. And everything's ready for your arrival tomorrow. P.S. It sure is quite hot down here. You can imagine what her reaction was. It sure is quite hot down here. We have heard the term hell. I actually googled this to see what uh, Wikipedia has to say. And what comes up is that it's a place of eternal damnation, a place of, of torture, a place of suffering for those, of punishment for those that did evil. And they're eternally, um, you know, in this place of, uh, in the furnaces of hell and God is... Uh, letting his wrath out on them for all the sins that they committed. That is not the Jewish perspective. We do believe in a certain form of hell, but I'm not going to call it hell. I'm going to call it Gehinom. That is the Jewish term for this experience. Gehinom comes from um, a word, Geh. Geh in, in Hebrew means a valley. Ben Hinom 
which means the son of Hinnom, was a certain valley near Jerusalem, which was a place which was uh, which terrible things uh, took place there. And it became, uh, somehow it evolved that it became the Jewish term for this experience of the soul, this uh, painful experience for the soul. So we'll call it Gehinnom or Gehenim, as we usually refer to it as. So from now on, I'll refer to it as Gehenim. What is Gehenim? What is the Jewish view of this experience of Gehenim? Okay, we understand that some people committed things and they deserve it, but you know we sort of expect a little better than God. So what do you mean a soul deserves it? Well, what's, what's the point? The soul lived its life in this world. What's the point of the soul just suffering over there? I mean, God just, just uh, is a vengeful God, just wants to let it out on the soul. I mean, poor soul, okay, yeah, you're right. It's his fault or her fault and they deserve it. But what's the purpose of, you know, this is God. What, what does he gain from this? What's the purpose of this? So obviously there must be, at least from the Jewish, from our perspective, uh, perspective of the Torah, which is a true perspective, what is Gehenna? What is the purpose of this? Let's take a look at source number nine. Our actions have distanced us from God. And our soul's capacity to experience spiritual pleasures has been diminished. Gehinnom is not the ultimate punishment. It is the place where souls are rehabilitated. It is an intermediate stage. Most of us are not perfect. And our actions have impacted us. In general, our actions impact us. You know, if we give tzedakah, for example, we do a mitzvah, we give charity, we become more refined, you become more giving, we become more, more, more selfless. And the more we give charity, and it's one of the ideas why we, are, we have tzedakah boxes, charity boxes, to train ourselves to constantly give from ourselves. The more we give, the more we give. We actually um, develop a trait of being generous and enjoy giving to others. So we, we are impacted by our actions. And similarly, the soul, this soul, which is, the, which is the vitality, it is the energy that is performing the act of goodness or, God forbid, the, uh, the act of uh, evil, um, gets impacted. The soul gets impacted. So that our actions throughout our life, the soul, um, some of the souls have distanced, have been di- the soul has been distanced or tainted, um, concealed from, through the actions and... Where are we here? Uh, and, and the capacity of the soul to experience the pleasures that are waiting for the soul in, in heaven, in paradise, uh, the soul cannot fully experience that. It lacks the capacity because it is dirty or soiled by the negative things that the soul um, took part in during its lifetime. So in order to cleanse the soul, to rehabilitate the soul, it needs to go through this this intermediate process as a preparation, and that is called Gehenim. So souls that never did a a bad thing in their life, they only followed God's instruction, then they go straight to paradise. But many of us uh, cannot say that of of ourselves, and therefore we need to go through the process of Gehenim. We need to go through this cleansing process, a process of rehabilitating the soul to get it to its... um, pure states. And a story in the Talmud sheds light on this idea. Source number 10. There was a man named, referred to as Acher. His real name was Elisha. Elisha ben Avuya. Elisha the son of Avuya. And he was a great Torah scholar. He was a, a colleague of Rabbi Akiva. 
and uh, the teacher of the great Rabbi Meir, who was mentioned numerous times in Mishnah, and I, we did have a, a class on him as well, on Meir and his wife Beruria, if you recall. And um, Elisha, at one point of his life, he, he turned, he had a, a great uh, descent, and he turned from the greatest teacher and rabbi and sage, he turned into an her- a heretic. And not just a heretic, but somebody morally very low and really took a, um, took a, a, a turn for the bad. But Rabbi Meir, his, his disciple, was able to still continue studying Torah with him because he was a, uh, a treasure of Torah knowledge. So when Elisha, and as he's referred to in the Talmud as Acher, Acher, the other one, like he, he turned into a new person. He's not the one we recognized. <clears throat> Source 10. When Acher died, this is about eight, uh, 1800 years ago, when Acher died, the heavenly courts declared, let him not be judged in Gehenna for his sins, nor let him enter paradise. Let him not be judged because he engaged in Torah study. He has a lot of merits. Nor let him enter paradise because he so egregiously sinned. His former disciple, Remeir, said, Better that he be judged through, par- through uh, Gehenna and then enter paradise. Imagine. Rabbi Meir, his disciple, is praying for this teacher that he loved that he should go to hell. What kind of blessing is this? What kind of uh, request is this that Rabbi Meir said and he actually accomplished that later? The heavenly court said he's not, he shouldn't go to hell. And the mayor says, no, he shouldn't go to hell. <laughs> What's going on? Obviously, this is, this is the Jewish view on hell. It's not a place of eternal damnation. It is a place of preparation, of cleansing. And in a way, it's a blessing for the soul, preparing the soul to be able to later enter paradise and experience the pleasures of the world to come. <clears throat> Source number 11. A quote from the Alter Rebbe. The purpose of Gehenna is to refine the soul and rid it of any negativity that it contracted through the sins that it committed in this world. This is similar to the process of smelting silver. You want to extract silver from the whatever the, the, the things that it comes from. So you need to, wherein the dross, the, the waste, is burned away in a furnace, leaving the silver clean and without impurities. So too for the soul to be able to process the supernal pleasures, for it to be able to take delight in God's radiance, it must first be refined in the fires of Gehenna, wherein the good is separated from the bad. So obviously this is not a literal fire, there's not this hot place where the souls are burning, there's, there's no bodies there, it's souls, it's all spiritual, it's not a physical place, it's a spiritual idea, but the concept, the concept, just like a fire can can uh, purify the silver, so too there's this idea that the soul is purified from all of this, the soils, all of the, the negative impressions, the false ideas that the soul convinced itself and sort of got stuck to the soul through its life in this world. 
It's a purification process. It's a purging process, a cleansing process for the soul, but it's a process. It's not eternal damnation. It's Gehenim. Yes, it's painful. Source 12, Gehenim is a cleansing process that enables the soul to experience paradise. It is a blessing. In that scenario, once a soul is in that situation, after living its life, it's a blessing for the soul. Rabbi Meir was praying that his, for, that his teacher, Elisha or Acher, should be able to go through that painful process because, yes, it's a painful process, but that will, clar- that will purify purge the soul of all of the negativity, all of, this, all of the negative impact that the souls had on the soul, that the sins had on the soul, and then the soul can go on to move on and become and experience the good part of, of it, the, the, the reward. It is, in, it is not a destination, but a transitional phase on the road to the ultimate destination. It is indeed a very painful process for the soul, but it's not a vengeful punishment. It is a cleansing process for the damaged soul. Think of it even in our world. You know, if somebody uh, is, is uh, you know, a step for, a, a crucial step for a person to be rehabilitated is to realize their mistakes, realize the extent of their, the, the, the repercussions, the, the terrible things that it, that it, that it, destruct, that it caused, the destruction that, that a person ca- might have caused. And yes, it's painful, but it's, in a way it's cathartic for the soul because it brings the soul to the recognition, to the realization of, of how bad its actions were, its behavior was till now. And now the person can change. And now the person can move on. After the person processed what all the negative impact, how terrible he was living or she was living until now. And that's what Gehenim is. It's the soul realizing the truth. It's the soul realizing what it, what it accomplished with sins, how, how it put itself in, uh, it was so self-centered and, and how it strayed from the right path and, and what it could have been and really feeling in, in the most intense form everything that it itself created for itself through the sins. The, the disconnect from God and, and so on. It's very painful. But that painful process is crucial in order for the, just like it is physically, you know, in this world for a person to move on, so too for the soul, it's just, it's a process. It's not the ultimate. It's not a destination. As we see in Source 13, all of Israel has a portion in the world to come. We never should give up on anybody. All of Israel has a portion in the world to come. Some have to spend more time in, in this process of hell, in this process of Ganem, some less time, but eventually everybody ends up leaving hell. It's not a destination. It is a journey. It is a transitional place. How long does the soul, what's the maximum that any individual soul can spend in this place? Continuing in Source 13, from the Mishnah, the wicked are judged in Gehenna for a maximum of 12 months. One year, 12 months is the maximum time, Hainio, that a soul can spend in this painful process. Usually, it's less, 9 or 10 months, it said, and some people even less, 4 or 5 months, and some people even shorter. And that is why, because the maximum of 12 months for the most wicked, that is why our custom of saying Kaddish. We had a, another whole class on the importance of the prayer of Kaddish said by a loved one or hired by a loved one to say the Kaddish prayer because it benefits the soul during this cleansing process in Gehenna. It's said for 11 months, really, maybe 12 months. 
But if we would say the Kaddish for 12 months, we're basically implying that this soul, the parent or, or uh, the loved one that the Kaddish is being said for, was so wicked that they deserve to be in hell for 12 months. It's such an intense and long process. So, we don't know. We don't want to do one month because maybe the soul needs uh, more. So we do 11 months, actually. 11 months minus a day, showing that it's not 12 months. We don't think that they were so bad. But, so we take off a month. That is the Jewish custom. So I think now we have a better understanding of what is the Jewish view. Um, now, the soul needs a cleansing because our actions are impactful. It's not just when we get to the afterlife, then God says, oh, let me look at your chart. Oh, this is the amount of sins. Oh, now I'm going to decide what punishment to give you. No, our actions created a, a result, created it's the natural consequence. So the action soils the soul every sin. Every time we do something not proper, not, in a, uh, not aligned to God's will. So we need to be cleansed. Now, there are other ways to be cleansed. If one during their lifetime does teshuva, one does repentance, and genuinely uh, has remorse and resolves to do good and does good, that, that what's called tshuva. And it's, uh, high holidays, Yom Kippur is a time for that. The word kippur means atonement, so we could atone for sins and, and the impact that our souls that the impact that the sins created for our souls, we can do away and we won't have to go through that, uh, such an intense process in Gehenna. As well as when a person suffers in this world, that is also part of that process. Takes away from having to do it later if a person suffers in this world. It's called Yusurim Mimarkim. Yusurim, suffering in this world is a kapara, is a kapara. The Sephardim might say, oh, people say, oh, it should be a kapara, it should be for a blessing, or it should be for an atonement for the soul. Even if it's not such an intense suffering, if someone is just put in discomfort, someone loses something, oh, it should be a kapara. The fact that, I'm, that I was placed in discomfort, that should be a kapara, a atonement for my soul. That suffering or lack of comfort. But, but, uh, but the general place is in the form of life that the soul experiences after it's the, uh, departing the body when it will go through this process. So to clarify, it's not eternal, it's not damnation, it's the natural consequence and it's a cleansing process. Moving on to our final section, paradise. What is paradise? So the soul, this individual lives, lives his life and he comes up to the heavenly courts and behind the heavenly uh, courts he sees this huge wall full of clocks hanging, high film. And he asks the angel in charge, he says, what are all these clocks here? And he says, well, these, each clock belongs to somebody living in this world below, down below. And every time a person lies, the hand on the clock moves. Wow, he looks at that clock. That clock is it never moved. So, oh, that's the, that was the clock of Moses. He never lied. And this clock, that was uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, moved twice. And he says, okay, where's my clock? And he says, your clock, your clock is in God's office. He's using it as a fan. <clears throat> so it's hard to know exactly what goes on in the heavenly court, in the afterlife, the experience of the soul. What exactly is paradise? What exactly is this? reality that the soul created through its good actions in this world and now it gets to experience it 
unrestricted, unobscured, without the limitations of the body. It's hard to understand. As we see it in the words of the Abarbanal. Abarbanal was a man, Dan Yitzchak Abarbanal, from the, the, the 15th century, and he was from Lisbon in Portugal. And the Abarbanal writes, source 14, the concept of spiritual reward is abstruse and difficult for human intellect, while still attached to the physical body, to visualize and grasp. Just as the blind person cannot grasp the concept of colors, so too the spirit, the soul, while still engaged in the physical, cannot grasp purely spiritual matters. We are so entrenched in the reality of our world that we just cannot fathom a different reality. It's just beyond our ability to really understand uh, and grasp what the spiritual life is all about. It's hard for us to, to relate to a, what the world to come, what the pleasures of the, the, the soul that the soul experiences. It's very, very vague, but a little bit you know, like a blind person. Try explaining to someone that was bl born blind what colors are. He, he can understand the existence of colors, but he can't, he can't relate to what colors are. It's not in his world. It's, it's not the reality of his life. And similarly, it is very hard to imagine or really grasp what the soul is going to experience. As Maimonides spells out, source number 15, how great, uh, he brings a verse from Psalms, how great is the good that you have hidden for those who fear you. There is a good that is hidden, and how great it is. But it's, we only know bodily good, and that is what we desire. It is hidden, King David says. It is hidden because it's not something that we can really understand and experience right now while we're living in the kind of life and existence that we are. However, the ultimate good is overwhelmingly great Excuse me, and cannot be compared to the good of this world. It's nothing compared to the good of this world. It's not like you have a plat platters and platters of the best sushi and pizza and whatever else you're dreaming of. It is something beyond, something overwhelmingly great. And that is why, if you actually look in the five books of the Torah, the five books of Moses, it doesn't say explicitly so much about the spiritual pleasures, about the world to come, even about what we're calling hell or Gehenom, and what we call Gan Eden, paradise, when the Torah wants to talk about reward and punishment that the Maimonides mentioned, the Torah talks primarily about, about material reward and punishment. If you do the Torah, you will have rain, you will have good produce, you will have security, you will have peace in the land, and if not, you will suffer, you will have suffer, so, and so on. Because why? Says the Barbanel, source 16, the divine Torah was not given to the wise exclusively, but to the entire nation, the small and the great alike. Therefore, the Torah needed to promise physical incentive that can be envisioned by all. Spiritual reward is hinted at in the, in the written Torah, but expounded upon in the oral tradition, but there are many, many, many hints, and some later in the books of the prophets, quite clear, but uh, in, this, in the Torah itself, it speaks more of the material pleasures, because there's also the simple explanation, as explained before, that reward and punishment is also as an incentive and deterrence, and therefore, it speaks more something that everybody can envision. But it is definitely a principle of Jewish faith in the spiritual reward, which is the ultimate reward. What exactly this reward is, it's hard for us to relate to, so it's hard to be an incentive. Source 17. One quote from the Talmud. In the hereafter, there is no eating, 
drinking, procreation, commerce, jealousy, hatred, or competition. Rather, the righteous sit, and all of the souls at that point are considered righteous. Their heads adorned by crowns, and they delight in the radiance of the divine presence. Now, they're not, they're not, they don't have literal physical crowns. This is, this is all spiritual. It's not like, you know, if you take a, a spaceship and you go really, really far, you'll hit heaven and you'll find the souls. This is all a spiritual kind of concept. The, the spiritual is not measured by, um, by physical things. Just like wisdom and concepts are not in a certain place. It's beyond place and time. One plus one equals two is not in a certain place and it doesn't have a color. So this spiritual pleasure that the soul experiences is not something physical. And what crowns mean, source, we're continuing in 17, the expression crown refers to a spiritual knowledge. What crown represents. The, the, the souls are experiencing this knowledge, this, this uh, basking in God's glory, in God's radiance, feeling close to God. And although maybe for us it's not such an incentive because we don't even understand what this really means. But for the soul, this is the ultimate pleasure. Source 18. Even we um, <clears throat> can relate. There's a, there's a pleasure in, uh, in feeling loved and feeling really close to another human being, to our spouse, to our parents, to our children, even siblings, a good friend. There's a certain feeling a certain uh, pleasure of being in a, in a relationship, being in a close relationship, in an intimate relationship. Not, not just not the physical pleasure, but the, the pleasure of, of, of feeling loved, of, of loving, of, of being connected. And for the soul, the soul has this relationship with God. God is the creator of the soul. The soul is a piece of God, just as a child is a piece of the parent. Children, are, uh, siblings are connected because they come from the same parents. The soul is an uh, offspring of God. It is a piece of God. It is a, a little piece of God. It is godly. And when it connects back to God and that relationship is experienced in an open way, in a, in a revealed way, that is the greatest pleasure for the soul. Source 18. Performance of mitzvahs forges a bond and an intimate relationship with God. As we said, the paradise, this experience of reward in the afterlife is a natural consequence which the soul created for itself through its performance of mitzvahs. Every time the soul in this world performed a mitzvah, it forged a deeper bond with God, fulfilling God's will. The mitzvah comes from the word savta, which means connection. That connection is intensified. But down here, its effect is concealed. The soul being constrained by the body, limited by the body, cannot experience that soul, this connect, that, ex, that connection, that bond, because the body conceals it. It needs the body. It needs to be here in the body because the body makes it do the mitzvah. It can't, it can't give charity in heaven before it came down. It needs to come down into the body and it needs to overcome the challenge and part with the money and use the hands to work hard and make money and so on. But... On the other hand, it cannot fully experience, it cannot really experience what the mitzvah accomplished, that bond that the mitzvah forged with its creator. Only when the soul departs its body and the physical world, it is finally able to experience the effects of its actions. Paradise 
is the experience of our relationship with God, that deep relationship which was intensified through its action in this world. This is the greatest possible pleasure for the soul. Because what does the soul crave? For the soul craves an unrestricted relationship with its Creator. And that is paradise. What kind of relationship? The relationship that the soul for, uh, created for itself through its actions. Once it gets to heaven, it's based on its actions in this world. In Hebrew, the term for paradise is Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. What does Eden mean? Eden means pleasure. Eden. Eden means pleasure. It is a place of the ultimate pleasure for the soul. Now, after all of that, we know, we do believe in a certain <laughs> idea of hell and of paradise, but that's not the center of attention of Jewish um, life. While we're living in this world, it's not like, why am I, why am I studying Torah? Why am I going to do a mitzvah? Oh, because... I, want, I don't want to burn in hell. I'm not sinning. I don't want to burn. I don't want to go through that painful process even. Or I want to, I'm doing the mitzvah because I want to be close to God. And I want to have that benefit. I want to have that relationship, that experience when my soul goes there. That's not our motivation. There, are, there is one school of thought that really puts the emphasis on the, after, on the experiences of the soul in the afterlife and that's why one should be very careful not to sin because oh, let's, your soul is going to be, you'll, you'll have to go through such uh, pain and suffering, a very painful process. Or you should do it. Why? Because, oh, you're going to get, what, what a portion are you going to get in the world to come? That's not, the, that's not the, the Hasidic way. And really it's not just the Hasidic way. Let's, let's look at the words of Maimonides. Source, or actually, this is a quote from the Gros. The Gros uh, <clears throat> lives in the 18th century in Vilnas, or Vilna, in Lithuania. Rabbi Eliyahu, and he writes, Source 19, The primary reward in the hereafter is, in the, is the soul returning to its source and uniting with God. Certainly, however, it is even greater when the soul can connect with God here in this world through the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvahs. For what? For that is the purpose of creation. Yes, there is, there is the experience for the souls after, but that's not the purpose of creation. God didn't create this world in order to give the souls reward or, uh, you know, and, and the cleansing process to get to the reward. That's not the ultimate. The ultimate is not that the soul, what the souls experience there. And the only way they get there is through this world. No. The purpose of this world. God created the system for this world. This world is the ultimate world. Oilam Hazed, this world that we live in. God wants a place like this world where He is concealed and there's challenges and we overcome the challenges and we do God's will. We bring godly energy. We, we bring goodness and kindness to this world. This is the purpose. To make this low world a place where God is felt, a, God, a, a, a place where God is known. This is the purpose of creation. That is the mission. And that is the, that is the main purpose of the soul. Yes, afterwards the soul will benefit and experience first the cleansing process and then the ultimate pleasure based on its actions in this world. But the main purpose of the soul is when it is, does descend to this world and live in the body. Maybe it can experience the full, um, um, 
the full consequences of its actions, but the actions is what counts. The actions, when the soul in this world does a mitzvah, that's the purpose. That's the ultimate. That's the reason why we're here. So what should we focus on? Let's see the words of Maimonides. A person, source 20, should not say, I will fulfill the mitzvahs of the Torah in order to merit the light of the world to come. Why am I doing the mitzvah? Because I want to get that, that reward in the world to come. And why am I refraining from sin so I shouldn't suffer? It is not fitting to serve God in this manner. A person whose service is motivated by these factors is considered one who serves out of fear. Fear! You don't want to be punished. You don't want to... Oh, so I'm not going to do it. You're worshipping yourself. You're not serving God. You're, you're, you're serving God out of fear of the punishment or out of fear that you're not going to get the reward. So, so, so that's why you're doing it. But that's not the ultimate of serving God. Serving God, we say every morning and every evening when we say the Shema, Ve'ahavta Eis HaShem Elokecha You should love your God. You sh- God wants you, this soul here to fulfill its mission here. Not just that the soul could get the reward. God wants the mission to be accomplished. Every time we do a mitzvah, we elevate this world. We bring good energy into this world. Even after the soul leaves, this world was elevated through its actions. That's the purpose. That's the, that's what God, that's, that, that's the purpose of the soul being here. So we're not focused, we shouldn't be focusing on what do I gain from this whole process. Hi Eric. What the soul is saying, what am I going to gain? Yeah, I got to do Torah mitzvahs, but what am I going to gain from this? What is my soul going to gain from the, in the afterlife? What is my soul going to suffer if I sin? And that's what we take into consideration to do a mitzvah or not to do a mitzvah. It's not about me. You should love God. What does it mean to love God? You understand that there's a purpose here. My soul was sent here by God for a purpose. And I'm here to fulfill that purpose because that's what God wants from me. Yes, there will be benefits. There will be uh, the constant good outcomes later and, and, the, and, the, and the painful process as a result of, of not doing it. But that's not what it's all about. That's not our center of attention. What we focus on is what is my mission? What does God want me to do? Not what I will benefit from it. Yes, benefits will happen. Source 31, as Maimonides says, Love God your God, the Torah says. One who serves God out of love occupies himself with Torah for no ulterior motives, not because of fear that evil will occur, nor in order to acquire benefit, even spiritual benefit, in the afterlife, in the world to come. Rather, he does what is true because it is true. And ultimately, good will come because of it. He does it because this is the truth. This is what God. This is the purpose of creation. This is what God wants to happen right now. You are fulfilling the will of the Creator of the world. That's it. That's it. And that's the mitzvah. That's the purpose. Yeah. Later on, we'll have our benefits. But it's not about me. It's about what does God want from me. Actually, the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov. Um, one time he was uh, in a dilemma, in a distress. And somebody helped him, and a couple, and, and he said, well, you know, what can I bless you with? And he gave them a blessing. They were married for many years and have children. He gave them a blessing to have a child within the year. And from heaven, they said, oh, this couple wasn't destined to have a child. You're mixing into our plans. And they said, because of this, yeah, you want to give them a blessing for a child? Fine. But you are forfeiting, you're giving up your portion in the world to come. You can imagine the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, the holy, the holy tzaddik, Righteous and pious man you can imagine what kind of pleasure was waiting for him uh, in the world to come for his neshama, for his soul. And they said, as a result, you will forfeit your portion to the world to come. And when the Baal heard of this, when he was notified, he was very ecstatic. He was very happy. He said, because now I have no 
um, ulterior motive. There's nothing getting in the way. Now I can serve God purely for the purpose of serving God. Not for any benefit, even spiritual benefit. Yeah, so very, uh, of course, if we're not at that level, we can first put up a mezuzah because you want that protection and security. But the, the ultimate way of serving God is out of love for God, out of love because you know this is our duty. This is our mission. Maybe to just give an analogy to, to, to wrap this up here. In other words, we're not living life for later. In this, if for those that live life, and because what's going to happen later, your whole life is, I'm going to get in the future. That's not how we should live life. We live in the present. Right now, every action is impactful. Right now, we know our actions count, and because this is what we're supposed to do. Let's give an analogy. So let's say you have, uh, you know, unfortunately, there is this disease called cancer. So let's say, for example, hopefully this will happen, uh, a medical researcher comes up, came up with the cure for all cancers. Right? Exciting. And uh, the, Nobel Prix, uh, the Nobel Prize t- committee, they find out that yes, it's, it's working, it's, uh, it era- it's eradicating um, cancer, maybe God's will. And he's invited to Sweden, I think, that, and they have a whole magnificent uh, ceremony and he's rewarded and so on, right? For this man, right, he, who uh, developed, uh, did the research and developed this cure. What's, what's, uh, what's more exciting? The ceremony? And now he was rewarded? Or his thrill is to actually be engaged in curing people? In, in help in making it happen. When we live our life over here, we're not just thinking, oh, when we come to heaven, oh, then we're going to get the rewards for everything that we did. Yeah, it's going to happen. But it, it, we're so excited. We're, we're on God's mission. God chose our souls and we can do mitzvahs. We're here on God's shlichos. We're here as emissaries. We're ambassadors of goodness. We're here to make a difference. What's more thrilling to us is the actual missus that we're doing. The mission, when we think about that we're, that we're here, we were chosen, we were given a Torah, we're, we're, and, and even people that uh, not um, uh, have to abide by the laws of the Torah, there's the seven universal laws for all of mankind, and when do that, they're doing God's will, they're fulfilling their mission. That's the most thrilling, not just the reward, and the con- you know, what's going to happen as a result of what we did. This world, this world is the place. That wraps up our lesson for today. I think we got just 60 minutes from when we started studying. Hopefully we have now a clearer view, a better understanding, perspective uh, of the Jewish view of the, not afterlife, but the higher form of life, the life, what happens to the soul after. We understand that it's a consequence, it's a natural result. It's not just God over there punishing and rewarding whatever He decides. It's a it's the result of our actions, we, what we generate. It's an automated process. Our, our actions are impactful and therefore negative actions can impact the soul. It needs to go through a cleansing process, but it's only a process. It is a transitional phase until it gets to paradise. What is paradise? That relationship, the pleasure the soul experiences being 
in a, in, in a relationship, a loving relationship with its creator, with God, even though we can't, it's hard for us to envision exactly what it is. But nonetheless, this is not the center of, Jew, of our attention. We know it's true. But we focus on the, on the present, on this world. Okay. L'chaim. We should live up to our mission to the best of our ability. Next week we'll start learning about Pesach. Passover is coming up in just about two and a half weeks. March 27th in the evening is Passover. We'll talk about Pesach. And Passover and uh, stay tuned if you have any questions. Feel free to, um, to let me know. Alright, gesund, be well. And don't think about the afterlife too much. Let's think about the present. Life is precious. And let's live life uh, in the most meaningful way we can.